Thank you for listening to the Celebration Church podcast. For more information about Celebration Church, go to ccacron.org. There you will find information about our church, upcoming events, and how to make a contribution to the ministry of Celebration Church. We hope this message is an encouragement to you. Praise the Lord. Well, this morning, I want to start a new series called Victorious, and uh, I want to take a look over the next few weeks at what Scripture says about our victory that's found in Christ. Sounds like a lot of you need the sermon series. <laughs> God has intended for you to walk in victory. Amen. And so I want to take a look at what Scripture says about victorious living. Today I want to start particularly with a series or, or a sermon. We'll see if it becomes a series. <laughs> Let me check the time. We'll see if this is going to become a series or not. It might be. I've got about 14 pages of notes, so it might be. <laughs> and everybody said, oh, my Lord. <laughs> I'll get you out on time, I promise. <laughs> we'll make this a couple parts. But I want to take a look today at what it means to be a victorious citizen, victorious in culture. Today is Freedom Sunday, and pastors across the country are preaching on freedom in our country. And I, you know, a lot of times, how many of you have heard it said, people say it all the time, well, the church needs to stay out of what? Politics and money. Well, let me correct that. That's exactly where the church needs to be. The problem that we're in the mess, the reason we're in the mess we're in today is because the church has stayed out for so long. If you, amen. So today I promise that you'll either get mad at me and I hope that our security team is ready. You'll either get mad at me or you'll, you'll come on board with me with what scripture says. But uh, I'm telling you that we're going to be victorious in our culture. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I'm telling you, the church will be victorious in our culture. We will not back down, nor will we shut up. Now, today I'm going to combine, I want to combine a little bit of what history says and a little bit of what the Bible says and give you a, a, a view of Christianity in our nation and what, how our nation was founded and what the Bible says about biblical values in our nation. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 says this, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to the fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The Lord is fighting with you to give you victory. The message puts it like this. Don't waver in resolve. Don't fear. Don't hesitate. Don't panic. God, your God, is right there with you, fighting with you against your enemies, and he's fighting to <laughs> Let me go back. I'm, not, I'm just not, I'm not sure that y'all are excited about that this morning. He's fighting with you against your enemies. He's fighting to win. There we go. God doesn't go into a fight that he can't win. There's never been an opportunity that he's been placed before that, that he can't accomplish victory in your life. There's absolutely nothing too difficult for our God. And I want to say this. Our country is not too difficult for our God. The problems that we are facing as a nation are not too difficult for our God. 
And the great reality, and I know you're all going to shout about this one, the great reality about the victory that God will bring, it says right here, that he is fighting with you and I. You and I are engaged in this battle. You and I are co-laboring with the Lord in this battle. It's not time for the Christian to shut their mouth and to back themselves into whole. It's time for us to live passionately for God. It's time for a revolution in our country. It's time for a great awakening in our country. It's time for another spiritual revolution in this country. It's the only thing that will save America. It's the only thing that will save our country is a spiritual revolution, and it begins in the house of the Lord. Amen. Daniel Webster said the same thing that makes a person a good Christian is the same thing that makes him a good citizen. If God's touched your life today, then I believe me, you've got something to offer. You've got something to bring to the table. You've got something on the inside of you. You have the power of God working on the inside of you. It's time to let it out. It's time to open your mouth. Say, well, pastor, you're teaching a political message. I'm going to teach you a Bible message. That's going to be God-focused. It's going to be Bible-focused. I'm not endorsing any politicians, so don't get worried about that. I'm not up here telling you who you need to vote for. I'm telling you what the Bible says about a revolution in our country. There's a time for us to have quiet resolve. But generally speaking, the church has moved from quiet resolve into slumber. Our voice is not heard because our spiritual vision has been lulled to a deep sleep. And thus we are perishing as we slumber. Maybe today we'll have an awakening. Maybe today you might get stirred in your heart for our nation again. As America continues to slide into moral darkness, the church is becoming an accomplice by her failure to truly make the difference she was mandated to make by our Lord. How did we go? If you'll just take a look at our culture, at our society, where we've come. How have we progressed from a culture where the church was the center of the community? Where the preaching was the center of our community? And we've progressed into a society that is amoral and away from God. How have we progressed in our schools where the biggest problem in our school system was whether or not chewing gum was allowed in the classroom and now students are shooting one another? How have we progressed as a society and as a nation in this way? If you take a look at churches, services took priority. There was no question whether or not Little League would not schedule a practice or a game on a Wednesday or Sunday. There was, it was never heard of such a thing that you would conflict with the church service. Schools were an extension of the home. They taught biblical values or at least, at least values that were echoed in the home and they demanded right behavior. <laughs> I would have never have crossed my mind in, in my day, and I'm young, and I know that those that are older hearing this today, but, but even, even at my age, I would not have even thought of dishonoring the national anthem or the Pledge of Allegiance. Neighbors. You used to grow up in a neighborhood where you would know your neighborhood, you would know your neighbors and know that it was safe, and, and the kids, the kids knew that the neighbor on either side of their house was able to spank them just as effectively as mom or dad was. <laughs> I'm just painting a picture for you today. 
In employment, the employer and the employee had an agreement. If you showed up to work, you would show up faithfully, you would work hard, and we will reward you with a salary. We will reward you with health insurance and a pension. Today, people are changing jobs left and right. There's no stability, and God help us with our insurance situation. Culture today is inundated in the entertainment industry Shows, TV, movies drip with violence, sex, and drugs. Fathers are portrayed as morons and buffoons before their children. The so-called family hours contain an average of eight sexual incidents an hour. Teenagers can absorb over 15,000 sexual references in that time frame, and very little of them talk about abstinence. Very little of them talk about sexually transmitted diseases and the things that will result from the behavior that they're engaging in. Schools do not teach biblical values. They teach everything from homosexuality to evolution, and everything is in an unscriptural education or context in their education. Sex education as well is unscriptural. Our society, you look around, and government leaders, key leaders and officials are not just thinking, and we suppose that they are anti-God, anti-Christ, but now they are writing it, putting it in news, publishing it for us to see. We know that they think that Christian values is a threat to civil liberties. It's before us every day. I'm not being political, I'm being biblical. I'm telling you what the Bible says is going to happen all around us and it's taking place. Let me ask you this. Was Noah being political when he stood and he went to build an ark before a people that had never seen rain before? Was he being political when he shunned the scorn and the shame that they were bringing upon him? Was Moses being political when he stood up in front of Pharaoh and said, let my people go? Was he being political when he stood up and he said, thus says the Lord? Was he being political when he witnessed the ten plagues come upon the nation of Egypt? Was David being political when he stepped out in front of Saul and faced the Philistines giant head on and he began to wind up his slingshot and let go of that stone that nailed the giant in the head was David being political when he kept himself in a humble stature when his leader wanted to assassinate him was Elijah being political when he stepped up on Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah and he said, thus says the Lord and fire fell from heaven. Was Nehemiah being political when he stepped before King Artaxerxes and said, give me provision, give me protection that I might rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Was Daniel being political when he said, I refuse to stop praying to my God. Throw me in the lion's den if you will, but I will not back down. I will not stop praying. Was Shadrach, Meshach, and little Abednego (laughs) being political when they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar and said, we will not bow to your false image. We will not bow down. And they threw them, they threw them into the fire. Was John the Baptist being political when he stepped before Herod and said, Herod, you cannot have your brother's wife. And his head got chopped off and handed on a silver platter. 
Was he being political? Was John and Peter being political when they were on their way to the temple and they looked at the lame man and said, silver and gold we don't have, but such as we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And they were arrested, brought before the religious court and looked them in their eyes and said, you are the murderers. This, is the, this has been done by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you killed. Were they being political then? Was Stephen being political when he was preaching and signs and wonders were being done and he was falsely accused by the religious leaders and they murdered him? Was John being political when he was boiled in oil, alive and exiled on the island of Patmos? Let me tell you something. They were not being political. They were being biblical. They would not shut up. They would not back down. The fire of God was in their belly and they were going to preach truth whether people liked it or not. Amen. Acts 17, 6, when they went in Thessalonica to arrest Jared and they drug him out before the city, this is what was said. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I don't have a problem being known as a world-turner upside-downer. We need some more world-turner upside-downers. People have said to us, Pastor, ever since you've got here, Akron has gotten stirred up. Pastors are all, you know, we've heard it all. Thank the Lord. Let it rip Jesus. Let the truth of the word be preached. Let signs and wonders happen. Let the glory of the gospel happen in our day. America needs a revolution. Needs a spiritual revolution. I'm not calling you to take up arms. I'm calling you to take up your word and begin to kneel in prayer and begin to live out what God has put on the inside of you. During Constantine's rule as emperor, one of the historians recorded this. We are everywhere, speaking of Christians. We are in your towns, in your cities, we are in your country, we are in your navy, we are in your palaces, we are in your senate. We are more numerous than anyone. <laughs> Lord, let that be said again. Everywhere you look, there's a Christian on their knees and boldly proclaiming the truth of the word of God. Our country was established on biblical principles. William Bradford, who was the second governor at Plymouth at the colony of Plymouth in November said this, last and not least, November 1620, let me say that, said he didn't, it wasn't last November, you know, obviously this was the Plymouth colony, this was in 1620. Said last and not least, they cherished a great hope and an inward zeal of laying good foundations, or at, or at last, of making some way towards it, for the propagation and the advance of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in the remote parts of the world, even though they should be but stepping stones to others in the performance of so great a work. This was the man who was off the Mayflower in the first, one of the first colonies of our country. The Mayflower Compact, which was America's first political document, says this, In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the great 
place of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., have undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. On January 14th, 1639, the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, this would be known as their constitution. It was the first written constitution, says this. Notice what they believe about religion and state. For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God by the wise disposition of his divine providence, so to order and dispose of things that we, the inhabitants and residents of Windsor, Hartford, and Wethersfield, are now cohabitating, get and dwelling in and upon the river of Connecticut, and the lands there unto adjoining, and well knowing where a people are gathered together, the word of God requires that to maintain the peace and union of such a people, there should be orderly and a decent government established according to God to order and dispose of the affairs of the people at all seasons as occasion shall require. Do therefore associate and conjoin ourselves to be as on a a public state or a commonwealth and do for ourselves and our successors and such as shall be adjoined to us at any time hereafter enter into combination and confederation together to maintain and preserve the liberty and the purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus which we now profess as also the discipline of the churches which according to the truth of the said gospel is now practiced among us. The church from the foundation of this country was the moral and the spiritual compass for our religious, for our government leaders. If you take a look throughout history, Benjamin Franklin's best friend was George Whitfield. Take a look at at history. You know, we we accredit the, the Revolutionary War to... In our, in our first, the starting of our country, largely a lot to George Washington. But there was a man that was more widely known during that time, and he was a preacher who traveled the colonies preaching salvation to thousands, and his name was George Whitfield. And it is said that he had more impact on the start of the revolution than George Washington. Uh, there's many stories, and I'll get back to my notes because I know you want to get out here, out of here on time today. But I want to take a 30,000-foot view of this just for a moment if we can. Our problem is called secular humanism. In the 1930s, the Humanist Manifesto was published. It was considered the Bible of the secular humanistic movement. In 1973, it was updated, and it proclaims itself as this, a positive declaration for times of uncertainty. Let me give you the tenets of this document. Atheism, evolution, amorality, individual autonomy, and a socialistic one-world view. This was in the 70s. In 1980, remember this date, 1980, Tim LaHaye, in his book, The The Battle for the Mind, summarized these tenets. Let's take a look at them. Atheism. We find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of the supernatural. As non-theists, we begin with man, not God. 
No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Evolution. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existent and not created. The human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. Amorality. Ethics is autonomous and situational and stem from self-interest. Favor right to birth control, abortion, divorce, and choice of sex direction. This was written as a summary of the, of the, the, the manifesto in 1980. Individual autonomy. We believe in maximum individual autonomy. We reject all religion, moral codes that suppress freedom. We demand civil liberties, including the right to oppose governmental policies, right to die with dignity, euthanasia, and suicide. Socialistic one-world view, we have reached a turning point in human history where the best often is to, be tran is to transcend the limited of national sovereignty and move toward the building of a world community, the peaceful adjudication of differences by international courts. Does any of this sound familiar to you? What are we to do as believers? What is our biblical response in times that we live how are we to respond? How are we to live victorious? Number one, we are to pray for our government. Let me say that again. We are to pray for our government. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy this, remember Nero was in power. Nero was a swell man. He would impale Christians and burn them alive in his garden parties. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3 says, there, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Pray for Nero. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Jeremiah 29.7 says this, Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. And we are familiar with 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Our response as believers first is to get on our knees and to pray. Are you praying for our government leaders? Are you praying for your church leaders? Are you praying for your civil leaders? Are you praying for the local leaders that God has placed in authority? Secondly, we are to pay for government. Scripture makes this very clear that we are to pay for our government. Romans 13 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves." For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And Titus, Paul wrote in his pastoral letter, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work. In Luke, Jesus addressed this. 
Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. It is, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a Daenerys. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Let me just pause here and say this. People often say, well, I don't agree with the government, so I'm not going to pay taxes. I don't agree with the pastor, so I'm not going to pay tithe. Let me tell you, neither one are wise for you. You are inviting the judgment of the Lord on yourself. Just saying. Number three, we are to participate in government. And I just want to spend a little bit of time here because we know oftentimes as believers we are to pray and we know that we have to pay, you know, the inevitable things of life, taxes and death. And so we know that those things are inevitable. We're going to do those. Oftentimes we lack in the participate area. So let me help you. Adolf Hitler in 1933 said to his inner circle this, I promise you that if I wish to, but remember 1933, this is before he really was in power. I promise you that if I wish to, I could destroy the church in just a few years. It is hollow, it is rotten, and false through and through. One push and the whole structure would collapse. We should trap the preachers by their notorious greed and self-indulgence. We shall thus be able to settle everything with them in perfect peace and harmony. I shall give them a few years reprieve. Why should we quarrel? They will swallow anything in order to keep their material advantage. The Parsons will be made to dig their own graves. They will betray their God for us. They will betray anything for the sake of their miserable jobs and their incomes. In 1940, at the height of Hitler's power, one preacher stood up and proclaimed truth and repented on behalf of the church. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, we, the church, must confess that we have not proclaimed often or clearly enough the message of the one God who has revealed himself for all time in Christ Jesus and who will tolerate no other gods besides himself. She must confess her timidity, her cowardice, her evasiveness, and her dangerous concessions. She was silent when she should have cried out because the blood of the innocent was crying aloud to heaven. The church must confess that she has witnessed the lawless application of brutal force, the physical and spiritual suffering of countless innocent people, oppression, hatred, and murder, and that she has not raised her voice on behalf of the victims and has not found, and, and has not found to hasten to their aid. The church is guilty of the deaths of the weakest and the most defenseless brothers of Jesus Christ. The church must confess that she has desired security, peace, quiet, possession, and honor to which she has no right. She has not borne witness to the truth of God, and by her silence, she has rendered herself guilty because of her unwillingness to suffer for what she knows to be right. What are the indictments against the church in our day? One, that we don't vote our biblical values. Two, we don't vote at all. And thirdly, we don't involve ourselves in civil government. We don't involve ourselves in the government around us. Charles Finney said this, it seems as if the foundations of the nation were becoming rotten and Christians seem to act as if they thought God did not see what they do in politics. But I tell you, he does see it and he will bless or curse this nation according to the course they take. 
Let me just offer you some statistics to show you and to illustrate what I'm talking about. George Barna did a study, and 90 million born-again Christians in the U.S. are eligible to vote. 39 million did not vote in the 2012 general election. That's 45% of so-called born-again Christians. Only 20 to 30% of Christians vote in non-presidential elections. Barna said that half the votes cast are self-described born-again Christians, though they comprise only 40% of the population. That means that 40% of the population proclaims itself as self Self-proclaimed, born-again Christian, they only make up 40% of the population, but 50% of the votes cast are by this population. And only, and there's 45% that did not vote. Think about that. The Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life says that in their study, 62% of Americans say their faith has little to do with their voting decisions. Shame on us. November 2012 general election here in Summit County. This is just an interesting voting statistic. There was 268,000 plus Summit County voters that cast ballots. On the same ballots, only 198,000 voted for a seat in the common police court. That's the the felony court. That means that 70,000 people who voted for a president did not vote for a judicial seat. Why does that happen? One, because people don't know who's on their ballot. They don't know how to mark. They don't know what to vote for. They're not educating themselves, or they simply don't want to. John Jay, one of our founding fathers, who was appointed by George Washington, he was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, says this. (laughs) My, how our Supreme Court has changed. Let me note this. It is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation. Let me, in case you did not hear that, I will, I'm not sure that you heard that. Let me re-emphasize that. The interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. How are we to vote? Let me just talk to you about this. And I know that this might seem, as I said earlier, the pastor should stay out of politics. Well, I'm stepping full on in this morning. Hopefully you'll join me. The water's fine. How are we to vote? You are to vote your biblical values. There's a lot at stake in our country when it comes to voting right now. But specifically, let me address this. There are a lot of values that are under attack. There's a lot of Christian values that are under attack. And you're going to say, well, none of the candidates, you know, come close. I realize that. I'm not talking about candidates right now. I'm talking about Bible. you got to pray and hear from the Lord beyond this. But, but let me say this. I've, taught, I've picked three of the top that I think God would pick as top three biblical values for our country that we need to consider. Number one is the value of human life. The Declaration of Independence says this. All men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, unalienable rights. Among these are life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Very basic God-given right is the right to life. Say, Pastor, I've had an abortion. If you're here today and you've had an abortion, I do not condemn you or judge you. God extends healing to you. He will heal your emotions. He will comfort you. He He will lead you down the path of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. I believe that. There's no exception. 
But let me just explain to you just real quickly what, the, what statistics and what the Bible say about abortion right now. Abortion ends the lives of 1.3 million unborn children in America every year. 1.3 million. You heard that correctly. 25% of pregnancies end in abortion. To date, there are nearly 50 million babies that have been killed by abortion. Some estimate that nearly 20,000 adults are euthanized each year. Death with dignity, maybe you've heard about that. Here's what scripture says about this. Proverbs 24 says, Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And he will, not render to, will he not render to each man according to his deeds? And Proverbs 6, it says, These things, six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. In Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18, it says, You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. What does that mean? Moloch was the God where they would offer their children as a living burnt offering. It was the ancients' abortion. We'll kill them. Psalms 139 says this, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God values human life. The value of biblical family. Let me make this very clear. Marriage is between one man and one woman. If you're here today and you struggle with homosexuality, I'm not judging you. This is not a message condemning you. This is a message telling you what the Word of God says. Likewise, God can heal you, set you free, just like He sets free any other sinner. There is no, there is no difference. And if you're confused, we have a men's bathroom and a women's bathroom. Let me just make that very clear. The family is the basic building block of our society. It was created by God in the very beginning. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Leviticus 18 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Matthew 19 says, And he answered and said to them, This is Jesus Confirming Old Testament scripture. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. You say, well, pastor, this, is, this offends me. Good. This is a Christian message. We are a Christian church, and I will proclaim the Bible. And I do not apologize for that. 
You know, the problem, let me just pause. The reason that Christians get offended by messages like this is because they don't know what they believe. They, they call themselves Christians, but they don't know what the Bible says. They're influenced by what the world says more than what Scripture says. And so I, as your pastor, want you to know what Scripture says. You're welcome. I'll keep it up. Writing in the leading homosexual magazine, The Advocate, lesbian author Patricia Nell Warren said this. Think about this for those who have kids or grandchildren in elementary school. It is the first fact of civilization. Whoever captures the kids owns the future. If you don't believe that's true, let's take a look at Massachusetts, who's had same-sex marriage laws since 2003. In a Lexington, Massachusetts school, they treated their second graders to a book entitled King and King, which is a colorful 29-page children's book in which a prince searches for a wife, only in the end to choose a prince. On the last page, the princes, now kings, share even a kiss. This was shared with seven-year-olds. A transsexual in Massachusetts was invited to a first-grade elementary school class to share about his operation. Again, I'm not so sure that I would enjoy my child sitting through an explanation of an operation procedure. Don't leave. I didn't mean to offend you. (laughs) And thirdly, the value of religious freedom. Galatians 5.1 says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. One of our most basic freedoms as a Christian nation, is the right to religious freedom. However, it is under attack. President Obama had a commission do a report on civil rights. I mentioned this, I believe, last week. I did not read the quotes or the summary of the report. I'll do so today, but they gave their findings in September of this year. It was the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. It was led by a man by the name of Martin Castro, who President Obama had put into office in January 2011, and then he elevated him to chairman in March 2011. This is the findings of that report. Religious exemptions to the protection of civil rights based upon classifications such as race, color, national origin, sex, disability status, sexual orientation, and gender identity, when they are permissible, talking about religious exemptions, significantly infringe upon these civil rights. Martin Castro goes on to say this, and this is in public news. You can find this. This isn't hard to find. The phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any other form of intolerance. Christian liberties, Christian freedoms are under attack. In 1799, Samuel Chase, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by George Washington, ruling in Runkle versus Weinmiller, said this, By our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion. And all sects and denomination of Christians are placed in the same equal footing and are equally entitled to protection in their religious liberty. Why? All of these years later, is this just erased from the pages of our history? 
So what are we to do, Pastor? Well, let me again summarize for you. We are to pray for our government. We are to pay, and we are to be involved. We are to participate. Get involved in the local government, civil government meetings. Find out what's going on. Connect yourself to those meetings. Find out what's happening locally. Find out who's on your ballot before you go to vote on November 8th. Find out what their values are. And don't just go watch a bunch of social media whatever. Find out for yourself. Do your research. Find out what they believe. Find out what their values are. Find out who they surround themselves with. Participate. Let me wrap up with this story. For those that still aren't convinced that the preacher should be involved in this. <laughs> Let me just pause and say this. All throughout our history, the pastor has been involved has been associated with and has been the compass, a moral compass, spiritual compass for political leaders. If you go back to the days of the revolution, Mr. Adams, Mr. Hancock, where were they at on the night of Paul Revere's ride? Anybody know? Well, they weren't at the church. The battle started at the church. They were at a man's house, their close friend, Jonas Clark. Who was Jonas Clark? He was the local preacher. Where were they hiding out? It was the safest place for them. It was often their hiding place or their place to avoid capture by the British. Why? Well, because Jonas Clark and his church and his home, <laughs> he had stockpiled a bunch of ammunition in their church. It became the armory and the, the church was the armory. <laughs> I'm not suggesting our church become an armory. But... Uh, it was safe for a reason. And Jonas Clark, the pastor, himself had trained military men. He was the man that was leading. He was one of the outspoken men leading voices at the time of the revolution. There's another man, you might know his name, by Peter Muhlenberg. He was born in 1746. He was ordained as a Lutheran minister in New Jersey in 1768. On January 21st, 1776, Peter stood up and he was preaching in his clergy robe. He was preaching from Ecclesiastes. He said, to everything there is a season. And after reading verse 8, when he said, there is a time for war and a time for peace, he declared, and this is a time for war. And he took off his clerical robe and revealed his colonel's uniform underneath. Outside the church... The drums began to roll as men turned to kiss their wives, walked down the aisle to enlist, and within half an hour, 162 men were enrolled in the militia. The next day, he led out 300 men from the county to form a nucleus at the 8th Virginia Regiment. Muhlenberg was behind it. I could go on, but I won't. I think you get the picture. It's time for a spiritual revolution. It's time as a church that we live victorious in the days that we live. Our country depends on it. Our nation depends on it. It's time that we rise up as believers and walk in the authority and the power that has been given to us. Lay hands on the sick and see them healed. 
Preach the message of repentance. Preach the message of salvation. Going out and telling everybody about the this, that, and the other thing that whatever your pet doctrine is, isn't going to do it. Preach the cross. Lay hands on the sick. Let signs and wonders happen. That will change a nation. That will change a nation. When they start seeing the power and the presence of God transforms lives. Lord, let it happen. Why don't you stand with me? Lord, we thank you for the United States of America. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for the countless men and women who have laid down their lives, have sacrificed their families, and have laid themselves on the altar of freedom. Lord, we thank you for their sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for their lives. Lord, their blood is crying out from the ground. Lord, we thank you for our country that was established on Christian principles. Lord, the founders establishing our country with a Christ-centered agenda. No other agenda but to advance the gospel. No other agenda but to have a, have a free country, to enjoy the presence of the Lord, the preaching of the word. the liberty that comes with that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that don't back down. But Lord, we will proclaim truth. We will proclaim the truth of salvation. We will proclaim the message of the hope of Christ. Freely we have received. Freely we will give. Lord, I thank you for those that are here today. Lord, I thank you for, for the water baptisms today, the new members. Lord, what a declaration of this, this true religious liberty that we have. And we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together today in liberty. We can worship you in freedom and not have to worry about, at this point, a government, a tyrannical government coming in to shut us down. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on the United States of America. Lord, have mercy on our country. Lord, would you grant repentance. Lord, would you grant repentance to our country. Grant repentance, Lord, that we will return to biblical values. We'll return to the scripture. We'll return to honoring you again, Lord. Father, we know that you can work a miracle where things seem dark and despair. Father, we know that you can work a miracle, Lord. We pray, Father, for our government leaders. We pray, Father, for your supernatural intervention. Lord, that they'll have the mind of Christ and the direction of heaven. Lord, not according to their own agenda, but God, that they'll have the agenda of heaven and the word of God. Father, that will be their sole source. Lord, turn their hearts. Lord, I pray, Lord, those government leaders, even the candidates who are running, even as we speak, Lord, if they don't know you, Lord, first and foremost, that they'll be born again. Lord, that they'll come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, that is paramount. We pray, Father, for revelation. Lord, we pray for a revelation. Lord, you can arrest their attention. Lord, arrest their attention that they might be truly born again, that they might be truly converted. Lord, touch them, change them, Lord Jesus. Lord, put a hedge of protection about them. Keep them safe. Keep them safe, Lord, in this day, in this hour. 
Lord, that you would help them, help those around them make godly decisions. And we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we trust you. And Lord, we just pray for this coming election. Lord, we know that all authority is appointed by you and you've commissioned your believers to involve themselves. And so, Lord, we as ambassadors of Christ, as ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom, Lord, help us to go to the polls, go and participate in government, Lord, with godly values, with biblical values, with biblical wisdom. Lord, that we'll have the mind of Christ as we vote. Lord, we'll have the mind of Christ as we involve ourselves in our community and our local government. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Celebration Podcast. For more information, visit ccacron.org or call us at 330-762-7458. You can also download the Celebration app from iTunes or the Android store. With my father, it's so hard.